Well, this morning we come to the creation, and God created, exclamation point. So if you will turn in your Bibles again to Genesis 1, we'll be reading some passages from Genesis 1 and then other passages from Scripture as well, and some of those we'll have on the overhead projector here. When God finished His creation, He saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day, as we read. We want to look today at uh, the Creator, and then the creation, and then the conclusion that God gives that we just read. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Does it matter? I believe that it does. In connection with the New Testament, I believe that it matters that Christ built everything that was built. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now, we have suggested that perhaps we might see God the Father as the architect of creation, Christ the Son as the builder, and then the Holy Spirit supplying the power. Now, that's my designation, but we do see some things similar to that in the Scripture. And as we go through Genesis chapter 1 today, we'll see some representations of the Trinity, I believe. What's so unique about the first verse in the Bible? Henry Morris identifies some uniqueness about this first verse. It's the foundational verse of the foundational chapter of the entire Bible. So it may very well be the most important verse in the Bible. We can't get to anything else until we get the creation and find out who is in control of all these things. It likely contains the first words ever written. It just seems to me that that would be the way God would do it. It surely contains the most widely read words ever written. If the Bible is the most highly published book, that ever has been written, then surely many people have set out to read the Bible, but they only got about as far as a little bit in Genesis. But they covered that first chapter in all likelihood. Genesis 1 refutes man's false philosophies, and let's run through the list quickly here. It refutes atheism because the universe was created by God. It, it refutes pantheism because God is separate and distinct from His creation. Polytheism because one God created all things. Materialism because all matter had a beginning. Dualism because God was alone when He created. Dualism referring to good and evil coexisting from all eternity, the yin-yang, the electromagnetism versus gravity, whatever it is, we wonder, where did all this stuff come from? Well, we know if we have Genesis chapter 1. It refutes humanism because God, not man, is the ultimate reality. He was here before we were, and He'll be here after we are here on this earth. It refutes evolutionism because God created all things if you believe it like it's written. It defeats fatalism because God had a plan and purpose 
for an orderly creation. It identifies the one true God. Now, we learned this back in God's clock. What is the distinguishing mark of the one true God? Psalm 96, 5. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Creation is the distinguishing mark of the one true God. Now, wouldn't it be senseless to worship all these created things? And that, that's what we see around the world today. We see through history people worshiping light, sun, moon, stars, water, plants, animals, fish, cattle. How about a golden calf? Bow down before a golden calf. Even God's people in the Old Testament. Creeping things, wild beasts, or finally the worship of man himself. We see that throughout history. God alone is to be worshipped by all of His intelligent creatures. Emphasis on the intelligent there. Now, why did God create the universe? According to Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. He created all things for His pleasure. He wanted to. It was His will. In some of your translations, it will say, and by His will, they are and were created. So if the saints and all the heavenly creatures are sitting around the throne praising God for His creation, what should we do? Well, we ought to work that in as well. And Isaac Watts leads the way. I sing the goodness of the Lord that filled the earth with food. He formed the creatures with His Word and then pronounced them good. Lord, how Thy wonders are displayed where'er I turn my eye. If I survey the ground I tread or gaze upon the sky. In heaven, why would they be worshiping the Creator if evolution did it? They'd be worshiping Charles Darwin, I suppose if he's present there. Next section focuses on the Creator. As God is presented in Genesis chapter 1, we learn something about His attributes and about His divine nature. Elohim is the powerful God, the one who plans and executes. He speaks, He hears, He sees, He names, and He blesses. He is characterized by beauty and creativity, goodness, benevolence, wisdom, glory, and power. His name links Him with His creation, Elohim. The root of that name is El, which means mighty, majestic, strong, and prominent. It's a plural name, although God is one. We might see a hint of the Trinity there. The Hebrew word created, bara, gives us further insight into the mighty creative power of God. That word is used exclusively in Scripture to subscribe only to the work of God. Only God can call into existence that which does not exist, contrary to what we heard last Sunday from Dr. Lawrence Krauss. Romans 4.17, 
God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Now here's a very important question. Did anything exist before the creation besides God? And the answer is yes. Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9 who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which were given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. God was thinking about you before the creation. He was preparing grace to give to you before He made anything, before He made the world. Titus chapter 1, verse 2 in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began. There were some things happening before Genesis 1-1. The Father loved the Son. There was a plan. There was communication among the persons of the Trinity. Choices were made. Promises were given. Now, there is a striking idea promised before the world began. To whom was the promise made? God didn't have to promise Himself. He would have known whatever He was going to promise. I'm thinking maybe the promise was made to the Son, Christ the Son, or to the Holy Spirit, or perhaps to both. There's no one else to whom a promise could have been made at that time. So we see the concept of choice, promises, and a plan all rooted in the reality of the Trinity. Now, how do we know as Buddhists and Hindu people would claim that God is not a part of the creation? Eastern pantheistic monism has this to say. We must define God in pantheistic terms God is the one infinite, impersonal, ultimate reality. That is, God is the cosmos. God is all that exists. Nothing exists that is not God. If anything that is not God appears to exist, it is Maya illusion and does not truly exist. And he names a number of things, uh, the pews there, the piano. These things may not truly exist. It's hard to wade through some of that religion and philosophy, some of the thought behind that. But the Scripture tells us in Psalm 102, verse 25, Of old thou didst found the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. Even they will perish, but thou dost endure. All of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing that will change. Thou wilt change them, they will be changed, but thou art the same and thy years will not come to an end. God exists before the creation and after the creation. And His wisdom existed before anything had been created. You can read about that in Proverbs chapter 8. So we're suggesting here that God was there by Himself. He brought some things into existence. Later on, He's going to take some things out of existence and change them. Not us, by the way. All people are going to be for all eternity somewhere. 
But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What part does the Holy Spirit play in creation? Genesis 1-2, we see something of the Spirit of God, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving, hovering over the surface of the waters. Now, that doesn't tell us too much, but as we look in other places in Scripture, for instance, Job 33, verse 4, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. It seems as we put everything in the Scripture together that the Spirit gives life and withdraws life. He certainly gives spiritual life. He makes the earth into a habitation for human beings. Now we come to the creation. What are the possibilities for the origin of creation? Now, we know the origin of creation, but if you want to just look at the possibilities, what's out there? Well, first, matter is eternal. Something was always here. Spontaneous generation, we had this one last Sunday. Once there was nothing, no mass, no energy, no motion, no personality, and then there was something. You remember the fellow on the video clip there was a guy who said, in essence, nobody plus nothing equals everything. You just wonder how that could be. But that would be spontaneous generation. Something comes out of nothing. And remember, it takes billions of years because you can't see something coming out of nothing right here. But it sounds a little more plausible if it happened over a long, very long period of time. Beginning with an impersonal something, a galactic accident, then that begs the question, where did whatever happened come from? Well, the answer would be number one or number two. That's about all the possibilities that we have, except number four, beginning with a personal something, and that would be God, a God who relates to us as persons made in his image. Dr. Francis Schaeffer has pointed out that possibilities one, two, and three leave us with some serious problems. Where did the form and complexity of this universe come from? If it comes out of one, two, and three, how do we explain the form and complexity? And another problem, if we begin with an impersonal universe, How do we explain the personality of man? How can we talk about the mannishness of man and his capacity for love and communication and all of these character qualities that we seek to employ along with the fruit of the Spirit? There's really no good explanation unless we take the Genesis 1 explanation of our being created in the image of God. And again, if we look back to 1, 2, and 3, we come up with some horrendous explanations of man and of his behavior. Now, many people would say, well, the opening chapters of Genesis, in fact, Genesis chapters 1 through 11, would be just allegorical. And that doesn't really represent what God happened in evening and morning, the first day, and so forth. That's just kind of... um, written in the mythology of an ancient day. Maybe it represents the first man who came out of the cave and stood upright or something like that. 
How would we answer that question? What about this? Psalm 136, beginning in verse 5. To him that by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endureth forever. To him that stretched out the earth above the waters. To him that made the great lights, the sun to rule by day, the moon and stars to rule by night, for his mercy endureth forever. There we have the creation, and now we move right along to other parts of history. In the very next verse, number 10, to him that smote, the, smote Egypt in their firstborn, for his mercy endureth forever. And then if you continue reading, you see God dividing the Red Sea, destroying mighty kings, giving the Israelites the land of Canaan for their heritage. Now, if you believe the Bible, the Bible takes creation and then the bondage in Egypt and then God taking them out of Egypt and into the promised land and putting the Jews in the promised land where they still are today. If you believe the Bible, then creation is as much a part of history as these other things that have been mentioned. Something else came into being in Genesis 1.1 besides matter, including energy and space. What would that be? Time. And time is very important. God is beyond time. That's the reason He can say with Him, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. Not to us, but to Him. Now that brings us to a very important question. If time began at Genesis 1.1, then how old is the earth? In fact, how old is the universe? Biblically, God created instantly. He commanded and it stood fast. And history commenced at that point. But theoretically, we're told that it takes billions of years for man to reach the very top of the evolutionary rung, the rung of the evolutionary ladder. So is the earth billions of years old? Or is it thousands of years old? It's interesting that the age of the earth was never much questioned in Judeo-Christian history until a point in history in the 1800s. I mean, there were some before that. But then we needed millions and billions of years in order to accommodate evolutionary theory. So then we began to rework Genesis chapter 1 to say, well, here are some other possibilities that will help us have a nice marriage of evolutionary theory and what the Scripture says. I'm talking about macroevolution. And we'll take a look at some of those theories. But first, let me say it is difficult to calculate the age of the earth based on biblical chronologies. There might be some generations that were left out of the chronologies. The length of an ancient calendar may have been different from ours. And yet, we see some pretty good attempts to base the age of the earth on the chronology given in Scripture. And one of those in the 1600s was accomplished by Archbishop James Usher. Now, we ridicule this guy today, but you ought to take a look in the annals of the world. I mean, he goes right back to creation and tells you what happened on each day, and then he comes right on down until today. Now, I can't say that uh, this is how it was, but I'm saying that he knew a lot more about what he was talking about, things that had happened at an ancient time, than many people do today. 
So I don't want to just ridicule what he says or just dismiss it out of hand. According to Scripture, we would be hard-pressed to get an age of the earth older than 10,000 years. There'd be some who'd say, yep, we're young earth, and some would say, nope, we're old earth. But let me explain to you some of the theories that we see that would, that would give the reasons why we can marry everything together and have the Bible and macroevolution as well. First would be the gap theory. According to this theory, between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, there was a huge gap of time, perhaps billions of years. And into that gap neatly fits all the geologic ages. So we can have all of these supposed fossil records that prove the earth is billions of years old because the, the, the earth, uh, after it was formed in void, became ruined, and then God kind of reconstructed things. It's known as the ruin and reconstruction theory. There is a problem with that. That gives us billions of years of death and suffering before Adam's sin. But we're told clearly in Romans 5.12, 1 Corinthians 15.21, death came into the world as a result of Adam's sin. Here's another one, the day-age theory or progressive creation. And this is an attempt to satisfy the evolutionist. And I'm not saying everybody that believes that is making that attempt, but it does give you a reasonable explanation, perhaps, of how we could have the Genesis account and then believe in the long ages of earth as well. According to this theory, each day in Genesis, where we just read on the sixth day God did thus and so, each day would not be a 24-hour period, but it would be a lengthy season of time, perhaps millions or even billions of years. So that would give us a lot of time for all of these things to happen. I can't see where the gap theory or the day-age theory, also known as progressive creation, has drawn anyone closer to Christ. Maybe it does, but it looks to me like it draws you closer to the evolutionary explanation. You'll have to read and decide. And there are a lot of complex things to look at if you're going through the literature. Well, it'd be nice to be able to put everything together and just have some explanation that covers science and the Bible too, but science is changing. And there are many creationist scientists who give us a pretty reasonable explanation for how things happen, and we'll take a look at that. Here is the Ten Commandments. Here are the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, and so forth. But if we're in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Here is a direct comparison between what God did in creation, the week of creation, and what we are supposed to do in every week. Work six days and rest for a day. There is another problem. If you look anywhere in the Scripture, 
when the word day is used with an ordinal number like first, second, or third, it always refers to a 24-hour period. And yet there would be some incredibly uh, intricate systems to try to bring it all together. Scripture predicts the basis for what is being said in our day, and it's in Second Peter chapter 3. Now, you've seen this before, but we'll run through it quickly. I want to put it up on the screen here. Second Peter 3, and beginning in verse 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. You may say, well, now, wait, many of these people are not scoffers. They are well-meaning Christians. Well, according to Scripture, we all have a tendency to follow our own evil desires. But even if they're well-meaning, they have aligned themselves, at least some have aligned themselves, with what the scoffers are saying. And we'll see what they're saying. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our forefathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Now there's the key. Uniformitarianism, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Physical processes now function as they always did in the past. So if you study what's going on now, you can determine precisely what was happening in the past. All radiocarbon dating, potassium argon dating, uranium lead dating, all depend on uniformitarianism. Seems to me that we ought to be interpreting the rocks by the Bible instead of the Bible by the rocks. But the scoffers forget something. They deliberately forget that long ago, by God's Word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. We read about that. By these waters, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Now here, I believe, is the correct system of interpretation, and that would be catastrophism. And that interprets our present geologic condition as having been the result of major, major catastrophic events such as the Genesis flood. Now that's very different. That may have altered the rate of decay of radioactive isotopes in rocks and fossils. And if you want to really get into that, check out Answers in Genesis, because they have some pretty good ones in some of their publications. Verse 7, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. It was a real flood last time. It will be a real fire this time. Will it destroy the whole earth or just the Mesopotamian River Valley? Well, Peter answers that as well. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Verse 10, the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. and The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Now, God's not going to destroy everything. The earth will be laid bare. He's going to reconstruct the earth, as we're told in the New Testament. But yes, it is going to be worldwide. It is going to be universe-wide. And I believe that the flood originally was worldwide as well. Now, since everything is going to be destroyed that way, 
What kind of people ought we to be if you believe what the Bible says all the way through? Well, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. You may find yourself growing doubtful and getting a little bit discouraged. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, this verse has been quoted to say, See there, one day in Genesis is like a thousand years. Well, it's like a thousand years to God, but it's not like a thousand years to us. And everything, it seems to me, points to an evening and a morning the second day and the third day, a 24-hour period. At least that's uh, certainly what I would believe. Well, what do we do about it? Dear friends, if you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. And then he concludes, Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you will not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to Him be glory both now and forever. Now be careful, because if you're carried away into full-blown Darwinian evolution, then there are some implications of that that are terrible and that we have seen worked out in history in Nazi Germany, for instance. Well, if the day is an age, we have another problem. How could land and vegetation appear on day three before there's any sun to generate photosynthesis coming on day, day, day four? God explains this in Genesis. If you're a 24-hour period person, then it's a simple explanation. Plants go without the sun every 24-hour period, all night long. So if the sun's coming in the morning, that is no problem. Let's take a look at what God's doing here. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. But God began to do some things. First, He's going to form this raw matter, I presume, and the elements. And then He's going to fill what He has formed. We see on day one, there is light created. He separated the light from the darkness. Sky separated from the water. The clouds above, water above, separated from the sea below. And then the dry land and the vegetation on the ground is separated from the sea. Then he comes back to fill each of those things that he has made. He gives the luminaries in verse 14 on day 4. And those are the light, sun, moon, stars, so forth. And then on day 5, the fish and the fowl, conscious life, are created. Verse 21, and they inhabit the oceans of the world and the sky, and then we see animals, and then we come to the crowning achievement of God's creation. What is it? Man and woman created in His image. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, 
and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And God created the man in his image. In the image of God, he created them female, male and female. He created them. Now, when Jesus was talking about marriage in the New Testament, he made reference back to this very verse. So he must have believed it. We are created in God's image. What does that mean? We are able to comprehend and worship God. An animal can't do that. We have a moral consciousness and we can understand right and wrong. We can think abstractly and contemplate the past and the future. I doubt if your dog is sitting at home uh, meditating on his birthday party that's coming up in three weeks where all the Bow Wows in the neighborhood are going to come over and celebrate with him. We are different from the animals. We can appreciate emotion, beauty, creativity, these inner qualities that we talked about, love, compassion, kindness, and all those things. We have a capacity for relationships governed by love and commitment. You make a commitment in marriage. You make a commitment to rear children. You make a commitment of your life to Jesus Christ. Created in God's image, that's what it means, but there is something else that we could consider in Philippians 2.7. It said, Christ came in the likeness of man. So when God looked down the road of the future to the incarnation, maybe he was thinking, you know, I'm going to create all people just like I want my son to be while he's there on earth. Not that we look like him, but we are human beings, just like Christ was a human person when he was here on this earth. Well, how does God's concluding statement regarding the creation express his own character? God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And then again, the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Six times in Genesis 1, God says each part of the creation was good. But after he created the man and the woman in his image, then he said it is very good. This was the crowning achievement of God's creation. So when he finished creating Adam and Eve, then he could look around and from the brightest star to the smallest flower, it was a beautiful symphony of color, coordination, and complexity. And the Creator, out of the overflowing joy of his heart, said, and it is very good. Amazing. That's the conclusion. One day we're going to go back to a very good creation. You say, well, it's been a long time. It's really been a long time. If you're an evolutionist, I don't know if we'll ever get there. But God gives us the promise, and He cannot lie. The Scripture says He never fails on His promise. Now, before we take the Lord's Supper, we want to remind ourselves of something else that God created that is not expressly mentioned in Genesis chapter 1. And it's this, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 
And it's because of Christ's sacrificial death and His resurrection that we this morning can be a new creation. I may not be perfectly sinless, but I certainly have a different attitude. I may not do the right thing every time, but I have an ability to choose what is right. Not only that, I have an awareness of what's right and wrong if I study the Scripture. If you have come to Christ, if you have confessed that you're a sinner and you need His forgiveness, if you have committed your life to Him and are living for Him, and you're in good standing with the church, then we invite you to participate with us in this Lord's Supper. If you can't answer in the affirmative to those questions, then we invite you to come for come to Christ for forgiveness. Recognize your need to Him. Commit your life to Him. He knows what's best for you. And join in those who gather around His throne who praise Him for His honor, His glory, His power, His majesty, and for the fact that one day He will redeem all of the creation. Now the guys are going to pass out the elements and I want you to give consideration to what we have said. If God is all-powerful, He can do it. He can bring into existence things which did not exist. And let's think about that and let's praise Him for that mighty power that He has shown us in the creation.